I'm Cameron Silsby, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part two in our series, An Alternative Society. So much of the way we read the scriptures is through the perspective of the individual, but we can easily miss the consistent theme within the scriptures of family, individuals who are part of a family and individuals who are saved into God's family. So uh, we are in the second week of our annual vision series. Uh, Tonight we'll be laying some of the biblical and conceptual framework that will carry through this series. And so I'll start it by sharing that when I was in middle school, my foot was punctured by a small tree trunk. How's that for a start? Yeah, but uh, we'll come back to that in a moment. All right, uh, here's a little bit of participation for you guys. These are not rhetorical questions, just curious. Raise your hand if your parents are within a 15-minute walk of where you live. Okay, a few. Okay, cool. Raise your hand if you live in the same state in which you were born. A few more. Okay, cool. Uh, Okay, how about this? Raise your hand if you ever had a grandparent live with you when you were growing up. Okay, that's actually more than I was expecting. That's cool. All right. Um, And then raise your hand if you've called or hung out with a cousin within the last month. (laughs) Who who said, whose response was that? (laughs) Nice. Okay. I'm sure you love your cousins. Um, Raise your hand if you've called or hung out with a sibling or a parent in the last week. Okay, cool. What is family. Since the 1950s, American culture has mostly uh, been defined, or has mostly defined family by the, num- by the nuclear family ideal of two married parents and two to three kids living under the same roof. That is family. Which is actually kind of weird because according to the most recent census data, just, just under 18% of American households fit that criteria. <laughs> Most don't. Our culture used to define family differently, not just uh, define it, but actually like live it out differently. Uh, Before industrialization in America, most families were centralized around a family business. Parents, kids, grandparents, potentially aunts and uncles and cousins living together or within very close proximity of each other. It also included uh, people who weren't blood-related but worked for the family business as well. Uh, Stephen Ruggles, a professor of history and population studies, has coined these families as corporate families. In 1800, 90% of American families were these corporate families. In 1850, about 75% of people uh, 65 years and older lived with their kids and grandkids. 75%. Uh, Things changed over time with the industrialization in America. In the 50s and 60s saw the the promotion of the nuclear family as the ideal. A husband, a wife, two or three children, all living under the same roof. That is your family. And that is how society expected people to structure their lives. Add to that political slogans like family values, and over time, the nuclear family wasn't just kind of this feat of social engineering, it was a religious obligation. My point isn't to say that, you know, the corporate form of family is better than the nuclear form, or really 
any form of family that we construct. No form of family will be perfect since it includes, you know, people. Um, but our views and definitions of family, they, they shape us and our expectations and how we live. Does God care about families? Does God care what a family is? I was at home one day in middle school alone. I was uh, born into a nuclear family, a husband, a wife, and had two older sisters. Uh, by middle school, we were no longer the ideal uh, nuclear family. My dad had left and was no longer in the picture. My mom worked hard to provide for me and my sisters, and often we were left to our own devices. Um, so one day, my mom had taken my sisters to an appointment. It was a, it was a summer day, I remember, and I decided to cut down a small tree that was growing next to a fence, <laughs> using a, a bread knife, of all instruments. <laughs> <laughs> this tree trunk, I sawed the tree, you know, and the, the trunk, I kind of remember maybe the circumference of like a quarter or something, you know, like it wasn't huge or anything like that, but it finally fell over and then I discarded of the evidence. Um, and left in its place was a small trunk sticking up about two feet from the ground. And then for some reason, maybe due to using a bread knife, uh, I left a slanted pointed edge to it, yeah, yeah. Um, now, uh, had my foolishness ended there, I wouldn't have a story to tell for this teaching, which, you know, the purpose of my life is just one long sermon illustration, apparently. Um, but, you know, it's a summer day, I'm home alone, I'm in middle school, I'm bored. Um, so I decided to train, and to train my balancing ability by walking along the six-foot-high chain-link fence right next to that little stump. And I was pretty good, actually. Uh, I walked along the top of it, kind of back and forth, balancing successfully until I fell. Uh, and thankfully, as I fell, I kind of grabbed the top of the chain-link fence and turned my fall into like this, this graceful kind of swing down to where I like triumphantly planted my feet on the ground. Um, except one of the feet that I, you know, successfully planted on the ground wasn't actually on the ground. It landed on that tree trunk. And that small pointy trunk went through my shoe and into my foot. Now, uh, to spare you the gory details, uh, it took me a minute to realize that the trunk hadn't just, like, hit my foot, but that it actually had pierced it. And when I realized kind of my injury, there's, there was this like overwhelming sense of isolation and fear that filled me. I didn't know where my mom was or my sisters. Uh, this was before cell phones and I couldn't contact them. I was bleeding profusely. I, I was scared and I was alone. I remember hobbling up to my kitchen, grabbing uh, kind of a dish towel, from there and applying pressure to my wound and not knowing what to do, I hobbled back down to my you know, front, front porch stairs where I sat down and I just began to cry. I was alone and had no idea where my family was. Does God care about how we define family? We often think of the biblical narrative kind of marching forward through individuals. You know, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Esther, Jesus. 
And that reflects kind of our individualistic culture along with just being easier to focus on one individual rather than a whole group. It's kind of you know, more neat and tidy to focus on a single person. But as you, you read the scriptures, if you pay attention, family is, not, it, it, family is an important context for each of those individuals that I just named. Their families matter in carrying the story forward. In fact, they not only matter, but families are the way God moves the story forward. And we'll talk about that in a moment. So the, the scriptures cover somewhere around 1,500 years of history stretching across various cultures and empires and locations. There isn't some set definition or explicit ideal about family that is dis- defined by the scriptures at the beginning of God's story and then stays consistently portrayed until the end. It's not like Genesis 1-1 says, this is what God wants the family to be, and then by the end of Revelation, you have that same definition going. It kind of varies. Family in the scriptures reflects reality. Oftentimes it's messy, many times it's beautiful, and sometimes it's bewildering or disturbing. But we can contrast some of the popular cultural assumptions about family with how the scriptures portray and think about family. So uh, the idea of family put forth by the scriptures has very little resemblance to the nuclear family. That's just a caveat, just right off the bat. Households were more of a common practice. A household would typically include a husband, a wife, and children, but it would also include cousins and aunts and uncles and grandparents, uh, servants, sometimes business partners. They were a mix of biological attachments along with societal or business partnerships creating a web of interdependent relationships. Old Testament scholar Sandy Richter describes marriages in these households as something more akin to a small business that creates mutual thriving purpose and status amongst its members, rather than simply being about, I don't say romance or procreation. It really, it sounds more akin to the corporate families of the 1800s rather than the nuclear family of the 50s and 60s. Family also went further than just who was in the household. A person's family also included their ancestors, the people who came before them. Uh, Some of the sections of scripture people in our culture have the hardest time getting through or caring about or even understanding are the long genealogies found in the scriptures. Who cares who begat who? (laughs) Unless, that is, your ancestors have some type of impact on your here and now, for better or for worse. Their honor is your honor. Their status is your status. Their reputation is your reputation. Having descendants was also a priority. You know, uh, having children to carry forward the family name, property, and web of household relationships was seen as one of the most fundamental goals in life. The inability to have children was experienced as an existential crisis. It brought shame upon a household, suspicions about whether some deity, some god, was cursing the family. The family members that came before a person and would come after them shaped the definition of family. And then along with that, so if you knew your ancestors, then you, then you could probably trace your distant relatives as well. Family also included these people, 
your distant relatives were also your tribe. Typically a very large group and potentially the size of a nation as your extended family. Not necessarily as interdependent of relationships as those in your household, but still people who, would, who you would generally trust more than those not in your tribe. But here's the thing with all of this. Uh, family isn't just mentioned in the scriptures as a side note. It's not just a background context for various Bible stories. God chose family to be part of his plan to save creation. So turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. It's the first book in, in the Bible, so it should just be a few pages in the beginning. Genesis chapter 12, and I'm going to start reading in verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So here's some context of what we just read. Uh, Twelve chapters earlier, Genesis 1, God brings forth an artistic masterpiece that we call creation. The crown jewel of God's creation were creatures that he decided to make in his image, humans. He specifically blesses them and gives them a unique role. They are to rule over God's good creation, his artistic masterpiece, stewarding the earth and, and working to maximize its potential and beauty and richness. But instead of fulfilling this role, Adam and Eve, the first humans in, in the creation story, rebel against God as they choose to try to rip authority away from God to become the ones who get to decide what's truly good and what's truly bad. And where once there was God's blessing, you know, his invitation and empower, empowerment to flourish and thrive, now there is a curse hanging over creation. The reality of death and destruction and scarcity, defilement as a result of Adam and Eve's rebellion. It's a disaster. Genesis uh, chapters 4 through 11 tell of this repeated cycle of human evil, rebellion, and wickedness sprinkled with occasional people faithful to God and then God's response to all of it. As the narrative approaches Genesis 12 and Abram, it seems like the story is kind of stuck in this cycle. Humans are hopelessly tainted and bent towards rebellion and evil and sin. God responds with justice and also mercy and yet, sin continues to infect all of creation. And then, Abram enters the story. He's known more widely as Abraham. It's a change of name that God gives him a little bit later in the story. So just FYI, if you didn't know, Abram, Abraham, same person. Oh, so, uh, Abram hailed from the pagan ancient city-state of Ur. Abram is fairly old, married, and childless. He does not have a single descendant, which, remember, is disastrous in existential, religious, social, and economic ways for a person in, in Abram's culture. So maybe when one of the gods, specifically the single god that we know as Yahweh, calls Abram to leave his homeland and migrate to a new land, I mean, I can imagine that perhaps there's some motivation to leave behind some of that stigma of being childless. 
And at the same time, the specific God, Yahweh, makes a promise to Abram. If he obeys and undertakes this journey to an unknown land and an unknown future. So from Genesis 12, God says to Abram, I will make you into a great nation. Don't think of a political state with a government and a foreign policy. Think instead of innumerable descendants, a nation-sized family, a very, very big family tree for somebody who doesn't have kids. And I will bless you, God tells him. Blessing is a key theme in this promise by God. Abram will receive God's favor and lavish generosity, something that he that will be passed down to his descendants that, again, he still doesn't have. I will make your name great. Again, the aging Abram who is childless and without a future because of it, who without a child will have his name snuffed out as if he never existed, the shame, the humiliation, the disappointment, but God promises that everyone will know his name. Abram, who is leaving everyone who knows him to go to a strange land full of strangers, God will, will make sure people have his name on their lips. And you will be a blessing. Abram, the one who would be regarded as cursed by the gods, he will epitomize what favor from God looks like. What does God's lavish generosity and kindness look like? Abram, that's what it looks like. A childless immigrant without a future to pass along, he becomes the recipient of generosity and kindness beyond imagination. I will bless those who bless you. God chooses to enter into a covenant relationship with Abram, and those who bless Abram will share in and experience the covenant blessings intended for Abram. And whoever curses you, I will curse. Likewise, the one who curses or treats Abram with contempt is essentially treating God that way, since God has entered into this covenant relationship with Abram. And all the people's of the earth will be blessed through you. Through Abram, a childless old man, the entire earth will be blessed through him and his descendants. The author of Genesis is doing something even deeper than we might realize with the language of blessing and cursing. What's the opposite of blessing? Cursing, cursing yeah. God's desire is to push back the curse of humanity's rebellion from Genesis chapter 3 by blessing Abram and his descendants, his family. And not only blessing them, but blessing the entire world through them, using this one family as a conduit of his blessing to all of humanity. And starting with Abraham, this one family extends out and becomes the context for the rest of the story of the scriptures. Moses is a descendant of Abraham, Joshua too, Samuel, Elijah, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Esther, David, all of these people, descendants of Abraham. There's a whole book of the Bible, Ruth, that chronicles the story of a woman who is not a descendant of Abraham but who marries into his family line and con contributes to the story that would bring us all the way to Jesus. 
But then, okay, then we do come to Jesus, and, and maybe we think, what does family have to do with Jesus? He's the Savior of the world, not his family. Good point. You got me there. Uh, but uh, what does, what does Mo- Matthew's biography of Jesus start with? Genealogy, yes. Okay, and here's, here's a harder question, but I've kind of been foreshadowing it this whole teaching. And with what person does that genealogy start with? Abraham. Yeah. Jesus's family matters. His ancestors, their stories matter and inform what Jesus is up to as the Savior of the world. However, if you know Jesus, he typically doesn't keep things straightforward. He likes to kind of rock our boats a little bit. So uh, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. It's the first book of the New Testament. No shame if you have to consult the table of contents. Matthew chapter 12. It's what Wanda was just reading up here a little bit ago. Matthew chapter 12, and I'm going to start reading in verse 46. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Okay, so uh, this seems to kind of derail the whole family thing, right? Uh, Jesus has his mother and siblings, his, his family who are descendants of Abraham wanting to talk to him, and he uses it as a teaching moment to do something that might seem unexpected. He throws the gates wide open to Abraham's family and to God's family. It's not about being a descendant or in the household of a descendant of Abraham. It's about doing the Father's will. Don't read that as, you know, perfect obedience, as in, as long as you don't sin, God will consider you in his family. Think of it as whoever makes it their goal in life to live in faithfulness to God, they're in no matter who they are. The amazing thing about this being that anyone can join God's family. Genetics or who you marry is not a determining factor. This wide open invitation to become part of God's family though, it's, it's not a pivot away from God's promise to Abraham to have a nation-sized family. It's the fulfillment. It's what God intended the entire time. Abraham's family as a blessing to the entire world. Paul picks up on this in his letter to the church in the region of Galatia. He writes, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith, not mental assent, don't think of it as, you know, cognitive belief, but through faithfulness, a whole life faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Anything that would have signified that somebody's more important than another person in God's family, that's done away with. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed or descendant and heirs according to the promise. The promise God made to Abraham is something we inherit. We are blessed in order to be a blessing to the world. We are God's conduit of blessing to the world around us. We are a new family 
through Christ. And more than just being descendants of Abraham, through Jesus, God adopts us as his own. We are sons and daughters of God Most High. Not a nuclear family, not a corporate family, a family of faithfulness to Jesus. As I sat crying on my front porch steps, uh, unbeknownst to me, uh, my neighborhood best friend, Casey, who lived across the street, he saw me. I had knocked on his door earlier, but nobody had answered, so I assumed he wasn't home. Uh, he came out and asked if I was okay. I showed him my injury, and he called his mom at work and asked what we should do. I, we had no idea. <laughs> she, uh, Casey's mom called then my uncle, who was also at work and who lived next door to my family, to tell him I needed to go to the emergency room. Uh, he showed up really quick. Uh, I remember him screeching his tires of his white Chrysler minivan as he like turned onto our street. Um, uh, my uncle lifted me up in his arms and loaded me into the van and Casey hopped in to come with us. Uh, when we arrived at the ER and the doctor started treating my injury, Casey asked if I wanted to hold his hand as I winced and cried as they cleaned the wound. Now, uh, <laughs> me and Casey, oh geez. So we were best friends, that's true. We were also like, I don't know, best enemies. Um, we, uh, uh, <laughs> we fought more than I can remember. You know, like wrestling that turned into actual fighting, teasing that turned into cruelty. He once hit me in the abdomen with a wiffle ball bat and I had to go to the hospital for that, but that's a whole different story for a different teaching. Again, my life as a sermon illustration. Um, our relationship wasn't what I would call tender and kind, uh, but we were both little boys navigating a fatherless world, and we were doing so together. And that day in the hospital, Casey held my hand to comfort me. That day, my uncle raced home from work to pick me up and to take me to the emergency room. My mom and my sisters weren't around to pick me up or to comfort me, but I wasn't alone. Does God care about how we define family? What does it look like and mean to be in God's family? These questions uh, we're going to be answering over the coming weeks. And it's not always pretty or perfect being in God's family together. That's also stuff we'll be talking about. Um, it, it's good and deeply meaningful, but that doesn't mean that it's not really hard and painful at times. In spite of the hard stuff, there's meaning and purpose and a way of life that we are invited to embrace. We'll be talking about all of this in the coming weeks, uh, both through teachings, but also through hearing some stories from people who call Van City their home church. Their experience of community and church and being a part of God's family, the ups and downs of that. But you know, to start things off, uh, I thought it would only be fair and appropriate to share with you guys what God's family has looked like for me and my family over the past year. Uh, most of you know that a year ago, uh, my family's house was severely damaged by a fire that spread down the row of townhouses we live in. Uh, the, the house required a complete gut and repair job. We were displaced for nine months. 
we found ourselves over our insurance policy limits, it, it should have been an absolutely devastating last year for us. So I'm going to invite Hannah, my wife, up to help me share with you guys our experience of God's family over the last year. So the evening of the fire happened about a year ago. Me and uh, our two kids, our two girls, were at home. Hannah was hanging out with a couple of really close friends from church. Um, and, you know, me, me and the girls got out of the house in time, in one piece. Um, but we, have no, we had no idea what to do next. I mean, we're safe, but now we're just standing outside watching our house burn. Um, and, you know, it, it was awful um, and hard, but uh, pretty, pretty immediately we kind of had, we had support. We had people there caring for us. Um, uh, Hannah, how did all of that transpire? Not the kind of call you want to get, ever. <laughs> um, in, seri in seriousness, it was um, super, like, he called me and was like, if the house is on fire, um, the girls and I are out, but you need to come home. And I was like, okay. So I rushed home and um, just my friends at the time, like with the ladies I was hanging out with, they called and they were just like, we're coming right now. And I was like, oh, okay, great. Um, because it was just, you're in it and it's just like, you don't know what you're doing. You're like, cool, this, our house is on fire. There's a ton of like fire people out there. And they were just like, yeah, we're going to come and be with your girls. And like, they were in the car with them, and Kim and I were just dealing with our house just on fire. Yeah, and uh, it was like the immediate thing, and then it's like, where do you go when your house is on fire, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, and they helped out with that as well. Yeah, they um, got us a hotel for that night, and they took care of all of that. Um, they met us at the hotel, and we didn't have anything, so they brought us, like, um, underwear. <laughs> I wore uh, somebody's clean underwear. Uh, they said it was clean. They said it was clean. <laughs> but things that you just don't, they brought us, like, clothes and shoes, and um, that we, they brought us snacks, and I was like, that's random, but that night was a really crazy night, and the girls were amped, and we were amped in some ways and we like got up at like one o'clock in the morning and we're eating the snacks so it was just yeah it was a long night we'll yeah. just say it was it was a long night Fair um and, but you know in in all of this right away uh people were there for us and like mm -hmm. caring for us in this really awful time and then you know weeks and months started to kind of go by and people were very caring and helpful through kind of like supporting and praying for us. What was that like for you? Yeah, it was, to say overwhelming is like an understatement. And just because we felt the love and the support by you guys. And yeah, it was just, it was a devastating like experience. And I think like the care that you guys have shown, like, our girls and um, you guys like, you know, a couple weeks or the week, even the week after it was like random things were showing up at our door of like these like gifts that you guys have given our girls because they lost like their toys and like. Yeah, people being very. <laughs> <Yes>. uh, <coughs> 
sorry, uh, very supportive and caring. And even like in the immediate aftermath, people wanting to be generous and like somebody or some people started to go fund me and we're like, oh, this is, uh, no, we're not, like we feel weird, like being the recipients of people's generosity, yeah. feeling, ah, oh, we got insurance, we're fine, you know? Um, and then also like so many people um, uh, in our church, outside of our church, telling us that they were praying for us, or we assume even people who weren't telling us that they were praying for us, praying for us. You know, I remember, Hannah, you said multiple times through, the, especially the first, like, kind of tumultuous couple months, you were just like, today should have been a really bad day, but I feel the prayers. I feel them. And it didn't, it, today didn't feel as bad as it should have felt. Um, that support was so meaningful and comforting. Um, but all the support wasn't just comforting, right? Um, we didn't know until a few months into the process, but uh, I remember the day where I was when I got the call from like uh, our uh, restoration company, working with our insurance and stuff like that, saying, listen, you are, to get your house back to what it was previously, would take $72,000 more than what you have insurance coverage for. Um, we don't have $72,000 just <laughs> sitting around. Um, but it was amazing to see what we can only describe as God moving and working on, on the people actually working for the restoration company and the insurance company. Uh, what was that like from your vantage point? <laughs> yeah, $72,000 is a lot. And when he said that, the guy who was working with us, it sounded like a million. Um, I was like, so it just left me reeling of like, what do we do? Do we sell? Do we, like, how do we move on from that? That's a lot of money. And um, yeah, like Cam said, like, just feeling this, like, the so much love and support in the prayers, because I was like, okay, Jesus, like, that's a lot of money, but sometimes it got the best of me of like, okay, cool, like, what, how's that actually going to work, how's this all going to work out? Yeah, we're in, screwed. In real, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we're screwed in real time. Um, yeah, and so I think it just was like the generosity of like you guys and like the support and the prayers that we felt was just an overwhelming, to say the least. Yeah, like that, that GoFundMe that we didn't know what to do with. Yeah. Literally the first day the fire happened, uh, months later being like, whoa, this is really coming in handy to kind of help, help with this. And I remember having these conversations with like insurance and restoration company people, and it was one of the most bizarre experiences that I've had with like God working on people's hearts and they don't even know it. Like mm -hmm. I'm talking to these companies and, uh, and you know, uh, they, they have their own interests in mind, not our best interests in mind typically, but they were there being like, we want to help you guys in these very specific ways. We don't do that. We don't know why we're doing this but we want to help you guys out. And I'm just like, what? Like, are, uh, what? You want to you wanna help out in these ways and you have no vested interest in doing this. Like, you guys are really actually helping and you can't even explain to me why you're doing it for us. You're just saying like, ah, I don't know, we're just going to do it. You know, like, oh my gosh. Like, it was crazy. Um, 
So, uh, long, long, long story short, long days, um, but we figured out a way to get under our policy limits with an incredible amount of help. Um, but also with that, we, we needed to do a good chunk of the rebuilding work ourselves. And I'm no uh, handyman. I have tools that I probably shouldn't use as often as I do. But um, we, we needed more help. And that's so, for me personally, that's a hard place to be in. I don't, I don't like needing help, but we needed help. And so I was like, okay, we have to figure out how to do all this work ourselves. I doubted that we could do it. Um, but Hannah, you were pretty confident. You're like, we can do this. And so we went for it and had a lot of people with the time and the skills to do this kind of work that really helped and, and everything lining up. Um, Hannah, what was that like for you? I mean, you took on essentially coordinating everything. What was that like? Uh, it was really, I think, because I felt like we could do it because of, you know, week after week, we'd hear people be like, if you need anything, let us know. You know, we got, we got tools, we got, you know, skills to help you with. And so I, I figured when it came time, I was like, okay, we have lots of people like that wanted to help. Um, so I think it was just like so impactful to see it like tangibly happen. Um, like people came and like literally painted our whole inside of the house. And because I was like, oh, we can do that. Like it just turns a sprayer, just, you know, spray. Hey, spraying, spraying paint is really hard. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so someone in the church knew how to do it and um, came alongside Cam mostly and, <laughs> um, you know, sprayed. Um, Cam plays basketball with a bunch of you guys um, on Saturday mornings and heard multiple of you guys say, like, hey, you want to come and help that and do whatever. Um, we were doing the kitchen, um, an Ikea kitchen, and that was no small feat. Um, just multiple people coming and putting together this Ikea kitchen, um, again, just to see that tangible, like, you know, hands and feet of Jesus, really, um, through you guys coming and, like, helping us um, put it together our Ikea kitchen. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty incredible, like, having this timeline kind of dictated to us by the contractor, being like, mm -hmm. oh, this, it's not just a house project, like, it's, everything is intertwined with us getting this stuff done and it got done in time. Every single thing got done in time. Mm -hmm. it, our, our, our house got finished about on time, maybe even a little bit early, give or take, like somewhere around in there, like when everyone we're talking about is like, listen, construction stuff gets delayed for months, you know, and it's like, we actually ended pretty much on time, which is insane. It feels insane, you know. Um, for you, Han, What's, what's kind of one thing like you kind of take away from all of this? I mean, a lot of things, but one thing that you'd be at least willing to speak to about it. Yeah, just the love and the support you guys have shown us through the last nine months and continue to show us, like, yeah. It's not just the... Uh, 
you know, since it happened, but like continues to happen. You guys continue to ask, how are the girls? How's Posey? How's, how are you guys transitioning back into the house? Like we're still praying. So it's not just like you, you know, you obviously helped in huge ways and like tangibly, financially, but like continue to still support us is like, yeah, it's, it feels like a family and just beyond grateful. Yeah, we, uh, we're not alone and we feel that mm-hmm. and have felt that. Um, and you guys like, oh my gosh, like support, I mean, people in our church, people outside of our church, but really like you guys, we're seeing you guys week in and week out and you guys, whatever capacity you had, whether it was simply just praying for us and that probably unbeknownst to you, changing the trajectory of how these companies are interacting with us, you know, like what other explanation is there um, for supporting us with your time or with your generosity and it like lining up to meet this like $72,000 gap that we had no way of making up for on our own. But, but being able to say God brought that to zero and we broke even is, it, I mean... Um, and Hannah and I were talking just earlier and, and like the, the amount of, of support and help that we've had over the last year to, to like get us through all of this is, is like mind boggling, right? It's incredible. It's a miracle. It feels like an absolute miracle to us. Like, uh, but then we, we think about what this last year would have been to our girls if we hadn't had this help. And for us, that feels like a generational blessing that people have given us. That a year of hardship and stress and crazy busyness and figuring this all out, it was hard, but we made it through in one piece, together, stable. What it would have been like if we were alone in this, uh, I think what that would have done to our girls, what that would have done to our family, what that would have done to their futures, is, uh, it just makes it all the more real when we talk about being in God's family together. That our participation in it, again, whether it's just simply by being around, by praying, by being with other people, going for it, you know, doing doing little things that people don't even know that you're doing, whatever it is, but being a part of God's family, God has a way to use what you have to offer and to use what you, you bring and to, to kind of exponentially make that thing be a huge blessing, far beyond what you could manage on your own. And that, that's, that, that's something that I guess when we, we talk about being adopted into God's family and being his sons and daughters, that, that's one of those privileges of God bringing us to himself and then using us in ways that are just, we just can't do this on our own. We just can't be this on our own. But God makes a way for us to do this and to be this. 
Thanks for listening to Vance City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vance City financially at vancity.church/give.